All right, good morning. I don't know, my clock says eight, so I'm gonna go ahead and get us started, I think. Uh, if you are here for permission already granted, rethinking perceptions of spiritual authority, you're in the right place. Welcome. Good morning. I will apologize to start. I have had some those dreaded technical difficulties this morning and my PowerPoint deck had lots of lovely pictures and images that were just going to scaffold our learning together this morning and they are gone. So they have uh, disappeared and so we're, you're going to get a half PowerPoint with all the words and none of the pretty pictures. So I think we can, you can bear with me those this morning. Um, well, let's see. This is a great start, right? Let's see. Can you still see here? All right. Well, I am Bryn Valencia, and I come to you from Redding, California, where I live with my husband and my two boys. I have Baker. There was a lovely picture of them. Uh, my son Baker is three. I have a son Jude that's 18 months. Uh, we have. We're expecting another boy in September, so our house is is full and life is good. Um, we are both proud Pepperdine grads. We both graduated in 2008. And uh, since graduating from Pepperdine, I have, I got my degree in organ organizational communication. Uh, and since then I was, did some work in elementary school teaching and then I did some time at a consulting firm and then I left all of that in 2018 and I went back to seminary. And I'm currently working um, at Fuller towards my MDiv. I did a year with the Newbigin House of uh, Studies for Faith and Justice in San Francisco. Um, and yeah, so I grew up going to lectures every year. Uh, I, think, I think we counted like, one went lectures for like 25, 26 years or something like that. And uh, it's, this place is really special to me. It's truly an honor to be at Pepperdine, to be speaking at Pepperdine. Uh, this place has just become, um, it means a lot to me both spiritually and academically and it gives me a lot of hope for the future of our church tradition and um, I'm just excited to keep showing up. So what I've, I've heard in, in terms of who I'm speaking to this morning, my audience, um, I, anytime I think about preaching or teaching, they, I've heard it recommended to speak to, to think about the person you're speaking to and think about what questions they may be asking. So I'm making my job really easy this morning and my person that I'm picturing, I would have had a picture of her up there, is 20 year old me. Okay, so I'm thinking about the questions that I was asking uh, when I was a student at Pepperdine, when I was a, a younger woman, um, and wondering how I'm going to show up in the world, or maybe even better yet, how I was going to be allowed to show up in the world. And I'm going to try and respond to some of the questions this morning that I, I maybe was asking then. A uh, little more about me, I am a Church of Christ purebred. Uh, my dad just retired from preaching, so church has always been a really massive part of my life. It's a church that I have some of my earliest memories of being validated and seen and loved, even being told that I had leadership skills. Um, I felt from a really early age like a valuable contributing part of my church family. However, that story did get a little muddy as I started to grow up. I have two brothers and growing up they were both asked to preach and teach and I wasn't, right? Um, and I started to wonder maybe if those leadership skills were going to be better utilized somewhere outside the church than inside the church. Right, so I'm proud to say as a tradition, I think we've come a really long way in this. But the question remained, how was I going to picture myself as a fully welcomed participant in the church? So that girl is my audience today. The woman that's trying to figure out how she could remain for a church that didn't always feel that the church was for her. 
Today I'm going to speak the words that I dearly wish I had heard 15 to 20 years ago. Mm. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you can hear yourself loud and clear in my story. Or maybe you know someone and love someone who has experienced a similar, a similar journey. And if this is you, I hope that this morning will bring you a little bit of hope and maybe a little bit of clarity for the next, um, the next chapter. And if you don't find yourself anywhere in my story at all, I'm still really glad that you're here. Uh, I'm going to ask that you practice what we'll call intellectual flexibility, okay? As you practice a perspective, listening to a perspective that's held by others, many of which may be in this room this morning. I hope that you choose to trust their experience is, um, is worthy of our attention. And while this story isn't about everyone, it is certainly for anyone who has ears to hear it. My goal this morning is that you'll leave here with a little, with some more footholds to become more empowered and more engaged people with a renewed hope for the future church. I hope that we can add some tools to our tool chest for when we're feeling stuck and frustrated. And if you're tired of striving and trying to prove your worth, I hope that you'll leave today with your shoulders a little lighter, maybe your palms a little more open, and your feet ready to walk or maybe even run the road ahead. If you'll pray with me to start. God, we thank you for our time this morning. I pray that you're going to make our hearts tender to reimagine how you wanted your children to live and work together. God, keep us curious and help us to love each other better. In your son's name, amen. All right. It's going to start out light. Let's talk about power, okay? You're probably thinking, wait, Brandon, it's 8 a.m. It is way too early to be talking about power, and you're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, but the thing is, we, we have to talk about power. Uh, we can't talk about perceptions of spiritual authority within the church without talking and naming power. Power is the fuel that drives any conversation about who leads and who serves in the church. Now, power is one of those taboo words that you don't hear talked about explicitly very often, especially not in the church. And I'll tell you, I have had firsthand experience of seeing people actually recoil from that P word, power. It's very uncomfortable. The problem is that we absolutely must be willing to talk about power if we're going to become good stewards of power. We must be willing to name where power exists and how it functions in any organization, specifically in the church, if we're going to become good stewards of it. So let's make sure that we're on the same page of what I mean when I talk about that big, scary word, power. Okay? First off, power is a gift. It is a gift given by God. Gifts in and of themselves are neutral. They're neither good nor bad. It is how they are used that is most interesting and most helpful, and it matters most. So yes, God intended the gift of power to be used for good, but a quick look around our world, we can see pretty quickly that it's not always the case. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary. According to Andy Crouch in his book, Redeeming the Gift of Power, Playing God, he says that power is meant for flourishing. That's his word. But you can also destroy the image of God and people with power. So what's the difference between good and bad power? Okay, let's start with bad power. This uh, view is of power is built off what we'll call domination hierarchies. Only the few and the strongest at the top um, get to have the power, and it believes that power is finite, okay? Bad power believes that power is finite. There's only so much to go around, um, and so those with power spend most of their time protecting, preserving power whatever power they have. This view of power is a very small table. Um, and it assumes that uh, the power is, only, is limited to those that are sitting there. So let's think of this kind of bad power as a pie. There's only so much, and the more people you have to share it with means a smaller slice for you. 
If you view power in this way, most of your energy is likely going to make sure that you don't have to share your pie with very many people, right? So by contrast, good power. Good power builds on what we call growth hierarchies, the idea of communities that are built on the idea that everyone has the opportunity to grow and flourish. Good power believes that power is abundant, not finite. Instead of a pie, good power operates like a never-ending banquet where no one is ever in fear of going hungry. Good power believes that adding another seat to the table doesn't mean that anybody needs to leave the table or that there will be less to go around because good power is rooted in abundance and that there is plenty for everyone at the table. Uh, I have some images here. I think this would have been a, a big banquet table and then, you know, obviously I had a pie. But the main thing I want you to know, uh, if, if it helps you remember, think of the Lion King, okay? You know the story of the Lion King, yes? Okay, so Mufasa, great example of good power, right? He takes care of every, all the creatures in the Pride Lands, and Scar, <laughs> Scar would be bad power, okay? He wants to just take care of him and his own, and in, in the process, absolutely destroys the Pride Lands. Now, obviously, we're all big fans of good power, right? That's the team we want to be on. I choose, yeah, I'm team good power, right? Uh, well... If you've ever heard it, I, I just want you to think for and pause on it for a second. If you ever heard somebody say a phrase like, um, so, some people need to step down to make room for more people at the table. Have we heard that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we need to make space for new voices and new perspectives, right? Well, good power doesn't, and that belief system doesn't require anyone to leave the table in order to make room for more people at the table. Do we need more people at the table? Absolutely. Do we need different kinds of voices at the table? Almost certainly, right? Um, but good, but we, if we believe in good power, we, we know that we never, we're never going to get to flourishing by asking anyone to leave the table. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about power dynamics specifically in the church. Okay, specifically between men and women, because that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. There's this common idea that the history of power dynamics in the church looks something like this. We start in the first century, a deeply patriarchal culture, and that patriarchal culture means that men run the show in the home, in the marketplace, in, um, in, in the government, of course, and in the church. And from there, women were slowly concluded more and more over time. Um, they probably picked up speed around the women's suffrage movement. You talk about the feminist movement just a few decades ago. We have women being more and more included, right? And then the, uh, the church that we see today is surfing those waves of progress, and women are more included than ever, right? Is this the story we've heard? Yay, women are more included than ever. Oh, the image isn't there. I had a big fail sign that went over the whole thing, or wrong, or whatever, I, whatever it said. It's just, this, this picture is historically untrue. This is um, historically in, inaccurate. In the book, the, the Making of Biblical Womanhood by Dr. Beth Allison Barr, she does a tremendous job of debunking this myth. If I can be clear, this is a myth. Okay. Uh, in fact, the hallmark of the early church is the way the countercultural ways that they shared power from the beginning. Okay, specifically between men and women. So this is a better model. Okay, this one doesn't have the big fail stamp on it. Um, so using scripture and history, Dr. Barr proves that the church was radically countercultural when it came to men and women sharing church leadership in the first century. But soon we began to see church leadership segregating by gender. And yet we can celebrate that female involvement has begin, be, been resilient, okay? And women have been resilient to keep showing up. So the early church's model originally included women and church leadership. So as a tradition that takes a lot of pride in modeling ourselves after the early church, this should matter, right? Okay. So let's break it down. 
while the church started with female inclusion, it was quickly influenced by secular culture and women were pushed out. To make matters worse, Dr. Barr shows that after 2000, uh, over the last 2,000 years, the, the goalposts for female inclusion have actually been Sorry, moving. could you say that again? Mm, sorry about that. Uh, the goalposts have been moving. Okay. So some, especially in early centuries, the expectation for women to be included in the church were things like celibacy. Okay? And then later in more, more recent centuries, the expectation has been that women need to be married. Right? So we have celibacy all the way to marriage. So we see these goalposts kind of moving, and that's just one example. Okay, but we can still celebrate that women are still resiliently showing up even amidst these, um, these moving goalposts. Uh, the purpose of this class is actually not to, to create a historical or biblical precedence for female inclusion. That work has been done, and it has been done well. I can recommend Dr. Kendi DeLong. Uh, she's a professor at Pepperdine, and in the 2019 Harbor Sessions, she did a three-day course on a biblical precedence for female inclusion in the church. Highly recommend it. You can find it on iTunes. Um, also, just books like uh, Dr. Barr's work with uh, historical, um, the making of biblical womanhood, kind of take that, uh, the last 2,000 years view. So in conjunction, you know, we have lots of data out there and lots of, if you're more interested in that, um, talk to me afterwards and I can point you in the right direction. But today, we're going to be talking primarily about um, taking care of our hearts and our soul care in, in the waiting in our current context. Let's see. Um, we're not going to talk about this morning, but I just want you to see, uh, this is a long list of females that have been leaders in the church. Okay, that are named. These are not just women that showed up, that their names showed up in the church. These are leaders that are named in the first century church. Uh, there's a, we're not going to dig into it today, but that's there. Um, so while the church began as an egalitarian community, shared leadership, it just didn't stay that way. Almost right away, we see secular cultural influence infiltrating the church and baptizing patriarchy as God-ordained. So today's session assumes an appreciation for the ways that the church flourishes with the full inclusion of men and women, but it also acknowledges that um, not all of us live and operate in churches where that is currently realized, okay? So that's what we're gonna focus uh, for today. The images would have been helpful here, uh, but uh, let's look at the modern church today. We actually can't draw a straight line back to the first century church, but most of our churches, well, I would say all of our churches exist somewhere on the spectrum today, somewhere between women excluded entirely from leadership, women included in specific limited roles, right, or women fully included. Uh, and I, I imagine if you think for a moment at the church context that you are currently operating in, you can probably draw a dot somewhere on this line of where your church context currently operates, right? Got that dot? Okay. Now I want you to think of your own personal belief system and where your dot may be. It may be right on the same spot, but more likely it might be in a, in a slightly different spot. Okay. So um, it's possible that your church currently um, includes women in some specific limited roles, and it's, it's possible that you would love to see women fully included in the church. Um, and then there's this gap between the two dots, right? Okay, so your, dot, your gap may look in a different spot, but there, there's this gap that can exist. Um, and I'm pausing to name this gap because it really matters. We feel this gap in our bones, even if we haven't named it explicitly. As a people who love the church and take our identity with the church, within the church really seriously, this gap can be confusing, it can be painful, and it can even be exhausting. I imagine many of this room are, are here because you have a deep love and an appreciation for the tradition that you grew up with. 
And sometimes we just even want to focus on the areas where we don't have a gap or we're totally naturally aligned, right? And that's okay too. But I do want to ask the question, how do we live and even maybe thrive with full knowledge of this gap? And that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time together. So the question becomes, how do we choose to show up? If you're wired like me, you want to fix this gap. You want to solve for it, right? Okay, anybody else? Just me? <laughs> um, and then I want, you to, I want to ask you for a second. Uh, which dot are you trying to move if you're trying to fix that gap? Okay, if you're like me, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure my dot is not moving. So I'm, I'm interested in moving the church dot, right? Okay, let's assume for the sake of our conversation this morning that the church dot isn't moving. Okay, we can have a lot of conversations about how to move a church dot. That's not what we're doing today. Uh, let's assume that one isn't moving. And for today's conversation, we're gonna spend time on, like any good therapist would say, the one thing that we can control. And what is that? It's you, yeah. So as for that, this one, we, there would have been four doors pictured on, on the slide here. And the question is, how do you choose to show up? So there are a number of ways of ways that I've observed women showing up to this gap. And the first way, simply put, first door, imagine there's a door there, is um, the idea of not showing up. Choosing to leave the church either permanently or temporarily. While this can be a step towards reclaiming their own dignity, I don't personally believe that it's sustainable to do the Christian life in isolation. We need each other. The choice to leave the church leaves individuals and the church both fractured. The second door that you may take looks like what I'll call compliance. It's men and women showing up partially to the church. They choose to quiet, to edit, or to neuter them, themselves so that they can still maintain a place in the community. This door all, um, does allow people to stay in community technically, but it doesn't let individuals walk in their whole truth. Trust and vulnerability are off the table. At a surface level, the church is intact, but the communal roots are really shallow. The church, this church with door number two is left inauthentic. The third door is the door that I'm most familiar with, and it is called the door, we'll call it the door of persuasion, okay? It's a door where I show up to the community, but I expect change. I see it as my work and my goal to persuade decision makers to initiate change in the church, and this door looks a lot like proving, like striving, and eventually a lot of frustration for everyone involved. While the door number three church is still intact, it is divided and it is exhausted. The fourth door is simple, finding another faith community that welcomes you fully today. I need to name that door number four is a valid option and it's a respectable option, but it still leaves people searching for someplace out there that will better see them. The thing is none of these four doors represent a flourishing church. They leave the church fractured, inauthentic, or divided and frustrated. This is not the picture that God had for his people and surely there is a better way. The fundamental problem that I notice with each of these doors is that they reveal this sneaky belief system that power and authority reside somewhere out there. That it is my job to either avoid, to comply, to persuade, or to find someone else to permit me to walk in my calling. Each one takes on very different forms, but they all engage the similar, similar belief that power is wielded outside of ourselves. All of these I'll call disempowered perspectives. What if we believed that permission was already granted? What if we actually believed that we didn't have to wait for someone else's mind to change, 
for me to walk in my calling? What if we actually began living like it? I wanna to look to the Bible for just a framework that helps to scaffold this belief system. For a closer look at how God designed and the views and views our invitation for us to show up to live our lives of faith, we can look at some of the very first words ever spoken over us in the Bible, the Imago Dei. One of the first things said about humanity is that we are made in the image of God. It says male and female, he created them in the image of God. The importance of this claim is found in Genesis 127, can't be overstated. I've already heard it spoken of at lectures uh, this week. Unique from the rest of the good creation, God created humankind to carry God's image. The Imago Dei is a birthright and it cannot be earned. All men and all women created by God carry the Imago Dei and they are thereby deemed worthy and beloved aside from their accomplishments or their striving. I want you to remember that affirmation that was spoken over Jesus. It says, this is my son whom I love and him I am well pleased. Remember that that was spoken at the beginning of his ministry, not at the end, okay? Mm. The image of God empowers us to serve and steward our world towards flourishing, and it's totally separate for our, from our accomplishments or our qualifications. Next, looking at the creation of humanity in Genesis 2. So, so far, we're whopping two chapters um, into, into our, our biblical narrative. Uh, God breathed the breath of life into the Adam, and a deeper dive into the original Hebrew reveals that God wasn't just naming this guy Adam. No, you talked about that. Um, Fallon talked about that yesterday. No, the Adam is just the Hebrew word for mankind or humanity without any emphasis on male gender. This passage shows God's design for all of humanity, not just for men. So God puts humanity in charge of stewarding the creation and he eventually acknowledged that it is not good for humanity to be alone. Only then do we see God creating woman, the Isha from the man. And Isha is the Hebrew word for woman or for wife, and its counterpart is Ish, for man or husband. Reading this way, we see two things. The first, we see that stewardship was given to all of humanity, not just to men. And two, even more importantly, it says that, that the work was not good done without male-female partnership. We are not meant to do this work alone. When one half of humanity fails to show up to their calling, the work of stewardship becomes a burden. It's far from God's design for human flourishing. While religious institutions have a long history of delegating higher power to men over women, often using this very creation narrative out of context, you'll never find any hint of patriarchy or male-centered power in God's original design for human flourishing. The gift of power was always given to all of humanity, and it was not good for humanity to work alone. Next is the kingdom of priests. Fast forwarding a little bit to God's design for power and dominion within the nation of Israel. God's design was that his chosen people would be a kingdom of priests. We've heard that phrase, right? A people that would help the world to draw near to God. Pretty much immediately, Israel preferred to outsource this responsibility to just a few people with their titles of priests or clergy or maybe even a king right? But God's original, original design was that all people were to work to steward the world to be closer to God. We can call this radically egalitarian, that everyone was included as priests. And the story of Israel actually isn't outdated. We still prefer to have a king or really anyone with a title with, um, <coughs> sorry, anyone with a title to provide direction for our lives. Sometimes the mantle of priesthood just feels too heavy to take on ourselves. So we outsource it, just like the Israelites did, demanding a king. And hundreds of years later, Peter reclaimed this phrase, kingdom of priests, 
when he was talking to the New Testament church and reminding them that they are called to the same mantle. He says this in 1 Peter 2.9. While they may gloss over this, or we may gloss over this as really churchy language, the core of its claim we can't skip over is that all disciples of Jesus, regardless of tribe or title, are empowered to show up as priests. And finally, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Acts, we see what's likely the most radical act of God, pouring out God's Spirit on all the people at Pentecost. In Acts, we hear the words of the prophet Jeremiah, right, noting that I will pour out my Spirit on all people, on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men and your old men are going to dream dreams and see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Young, old, rich and poor men and women all are given the outpouring of the holy spirit can you see how shocking this is the image of god given to all people stewardship given to both men and women as a kingdom of priests and the holy spirit to given to um we'll say young female slaves if we sit with this long enough we should be shocked and maybe even disturbed how undiscerning how reckless, how extravagant, yet this is our God. Our God invites all of us into full ministry to act as priests, to prophesy, and to bear the very image of God. What a radical invitation. So before we turn towards the words of Jesus on this topic, I'd like to pause and name that um, sometimes men and women and male and female journeys can take slightly different shapes. And showing up to our callings. And, and I want to pause and talk about that for just a second. If you're familiar with it, the hero's journey, there's this well-known story arc that's used to describe the path to the first and second halves of life towards greater union with God. And it's commonly referred to as the hero's journey. Show of hands of hero's journey if you've heard of it before. A couple of hands. Thank you. Glad. Um, so this is named by Joseph Campbell. And Campbell used the word hero to describe someone who gives his life to something bigger than himself. Okay. So in this story arc, Campbell observes that men tend to spend the first half of their life acquiring, what do I have here? All right, all my images are gone, but whatever. Um, they spend the first half of their life acquiring, performing, and, and working to preserve power, and we call this the path of ascent, okay? Until at some point, usually in midlife, they find the end of themselves. Whether it's through great loss or great disappointment, they come face to face with their own powerlessness, okay? Then and only then do they begin the second half of life, the path of descent. <clears throat> they commit their lives to things beyond acquiring and preserving power. And this is the path towards greater union with God. We've seen this. We see it in movies. We see it in the lives of those around us. This model assumes the core sin of men is pride. The first half of life is centered on feeding a man's pride, the path of ascent. And then the second half of his life is this movement away from himself, the path of descent. This model has proven helpful to describe many of those around us, but if you're like me, it doesn't seem to capture my own spiritual journey quite fully. For most of my life, I've heard that the journey towards greater union with God is linked with me moving away from myself, quieting myself. And then I was introduced to another layer in the story arc that helped, or it just resonated with me a bit more fully. And they call this the heroine's journey. Has anyone heard of the heroine's journey? Fewer hands, yeah, it's less, less, less popular. Um, 
In response to Campbell's hero, Maureen Murdoch has done this work that suggested that heroine's journey, um, that women may take a slightly different path. At risk of oversimplifying, instead of the female journey beginning with ascent, Murdoch suggested the female trajectory begins in descent. Okay? Murdoch observes that beginning in childhood, women specifically receive messages teaching them to limit themselves, to take up as little space as possible, and to be quiet. Can anyone else relate to these messages? If you grew up like this, the hero's journey can feel really foreign, right? Isn't the journey towards powerless and descent, and descent the, the beginning of my story as a woman? Well, that's where Murdoch's model suggested the pivot point in the heroine's journey begins when she begins to wake up and begins the work of stepping into herself and finding her unique voice, and then she begins her ascent towards union with God. The heroine's journey assumes that the core sin of, of women is not pride like that of men. Any guesses as to what it might be for women? I shouldn't put you guys up to that. It's called self-abdication. Okay, <laughs> nobody was going to guess that. Uh, self-abdication. Uh, just the idea of leaving herself. Leaving herself. That would be the core sin of women. Not showing up to her own life and calling. So maybe this looks like outsourcing authority and waiting for permission to show up to her own life not taking up the mantle as image bearer, priest, and prophet. Just like pride, self-application is equally as toxic. Pride roots itself in the self. Self-application roots itself in others. Both fail to root themselves in God. The lie of pride whispers that we are capable of showing up as priests and prophets all on our own, just pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, right? Self-abdication whispers a lie that we can never be worthy to do what God has called us to do. So with that, I want to turn back and we're going to spend some time with what Jesus, how Jesus responded to this idea. It would seem that he may have known the deep wisdom that Campbell and Murdoch gave language to centuries later, that men and women often need to hear a different word from the Lord. All through the Gospels, we encounter Jesus inviting men into powerlessness, we see him asking his male disciples to leave their jobs, to sell their possessions, and to become like little children, right? We know these stories. But let's take a closer look this morning at the way that he engages women. It's as if Jesus knew that while men fear the descent, women may equally fear standing up. Now let's go back to the Bible and have a look at Jesus encountering two women in Luke 8. We're not going to have images like I expected, but um, if, you, if you have your Bibles, you're free to open to Luke 8. These two stories are woven within each other, and it seems like they're intended to be read in tandem. He tells the story of a young girl who, is, who has died or is dying and a bleeding woman that's seeking healing. And we read that the bleeding woman had been unclean for 12 years, which is the same age as this young girl. Both, uh, both women are called daughter. Both are called saved when they're healed. And both stories involve great crowds. And both stories uh, end with some desire for secrecy. So while Luke seems to be building on Mark's earlier account, um, Luke differentiates himself. And he has some details that are very different. And that's worth noting. We're going to pay a lot of attention to the differences. Luke consistently includes and esteems women in his stories. He seems to be debunking this myth that all of Jesus' disciples were males. So this two-part story that we're going to step into um, is just one of those examples. They come in a series uh, from Luke talking about Jesus' power, okay? How Jesus understands and how he wields his power. And spoiler alert, 
Jesus uses good power. He has a good power belief system. He's always pulling up more seats to the table. And just earlier in the chapter, he crossed purity and cultural lines to heal the Gerasene demoniac. Okay, uh, he's, Luke shows him being called master, which is someone who wields great power. And it just seems like Jesus over and over is showing um, just no interest in any exclusion that's based on purity laws or cultural gender norms. Jesus's power consistently honors those that have been historically excluded. His power expands and includes. So first we're gonna look at the bleeding woman. Uh, this woman's condition has made her ritually unclean for over a decade. We're not gonna soften this. Her status as a bleeding woman made her unclean according to the law, okay? She was not dealing with some kind of low self-esteem or some kind of like mental block that kept her from living a flourishing life. Her status as a marginalized outsider was legally bound and it was ordained by scripture. Sit with that for a second. The fact that she would venture into the crowd, putting the purity status of everyone in the crowd at risk, and even touching Jesus was absolutely reckless, and, uh, but it shows that she was totally fed up with the rules that defined her by her disease. And Jesus blessed her for it. Let's be clear, she didn't wait for doctors, the doctor's clearance. She didn't wait for priestly permission. She didn't wait uh, even for Jesus to say words of healing. She clawed her way through a crowd in relentless pursuit of something more than the life that she had been stuck in for over a decade. And Jesus blesses it. Shockingly, instead of Jesus being the center of the story, he's the one asking the questions. He says, who, 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 who uh, what did he say? Who touched me? Yeah. The woman reveals herself, and in verse 48, she uses one of, my fa- it's one of my favorite phrases in the whole story. It says, she realized she could not go unnoticed. And then he blesses her faith. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He honors her boldness, and he sees her. It says, realizing that she could not go unnoticed. I wonder if that might actually be the true turning point in this woman's healing, when she realized she could not go unnoticed. The Greek word for realized here is also translated to see. It's like her vision was restored. Purity codes and religious laws had left her blind to herself, but now she could see. Even though doctors gave up on her, maybe her family showed up a little less often, she realized she could not go unnoticed. I wonder who needs to hear that word this morning. You can't go unnoticed. Cultural norms may push you to the sidelines, and legalism may tell you that you're not worthy, but you cannot go unnoticed by Jesus. You bear the image of God. You were designed for priesthood. The spirit of God is alive within you and you cannot go unnoticed. I wonder if we can go our whole lives believing this lie that our gifts aren't desperately needed, right? That we don't have something unique to add to the kingdom of God. In the presence of Jesus, she realized she could not go unnoticed. But the story doesn't stop there. If we aren't shocked yet by Jesus' willingness to be touched by menstruating women, now we see him drawing near to a corpse, okay? It's like Jesus is blatantly disregarding all these purity codes that seem to keep people divided in order to bring life and healing and wholeness to the women in his midst. Sandwiched together with the story of the bleeding woman, Jesus' attention is brought back to Jairus' sick daughter, and the girl is pronounced dead, which seems to imply that timing has failed. I'm going to pause there. How often do we feel like we've missed the boat 
or that it's too late, like time is slipping away. Becoming a mom has made this fear way more intense for me. I want things to be better for my kids. I don't want them to deal with this stuff in my church and in my community that I had to deal with. I just want things to be better now. I want things to be better yesterday. There's nothing that has ushered in good-hearted fear and scarcity for me like having kids that are growing up really fast. But Jesus' response is, don't be afraid. It's a phrase that he uses more often than I can count, and yet sometimes it just slips right past me. Fear is understandable. But Jesus says, my child, don't stay there. Jesus says she's not dead, but she's asleep. And he touches her lifeless body and he calls her to get up. And in Aramaic, I love that we hear his, his, um, his words here. His, his words are talitha kum, which in the NIV translates as my child, get up. My friend, Becca Stewart, preaches this story with my preferred translation. She says, girl, stand up. Talitha kum, girl, stand up. The power of the story is that the crowd thought she was dead. Her parents thought she was dead, and I'd imagine the girl herself thought that she was dead, right? But Jesus saw her differently. Luke tells us that the spirit returned to her, and the girl stood up. Her spirit returned, and the same spirit, it's that same spirit that God breathed into the Adam that was meant to do good work in our world, that same spirit was returned to her. I love that next Jesus gives her a snack because I, too, believe that snacks are sacred. <laughs> uh, but this also reminds us of Jesus eating with his disciples after his resurrection. We see that in Luke 24. It's like saying, this is not a ghost. This is not, this is not an angel. This is not some kind of spirit. Jesus has made her fully alive. Talitha Kum, girl, stand up. Well, traditionally, the masculine journey may require a descent to find greater union with God, is it possible that many women, for many women, their path towards wholeness is beginning the ascent? Girls stand up, standing up possibly for the first time in their lives, stepping back into themselves, taking up space. For many women, we feel the power of this invitation from Jesus. Girl, stand up and breathe life once again. I want to speak this over all of you, even my guys. I know we have a lot of guys in the room, and if you're willing to receive it, I want to speak it over everyone. This isn't some sort of feminist manifesto. These are the words of Jesus calling us out of the ways that we have all been asleep. Men and women alike have fallen asleep to our calling as priests and prophets, whether we have numbed ourselves to sleep, whether we have outsourced our identity, or tried to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and earn our Imago Day calling. We have all made excuses to not step into the fullness of who God designed us to be as brothers and sisters. We were never made to do this work alone. The pictures. Liz Gilbert, um, author of Big Magic, she's one of my favorite authors, compiled, a, she, she talks about the creative process and she compiled a list of reasons she found limited people from standing up, okay? Here are just a few. Are they gonna yeah, all right. You're afraid you have, no, you have no talent. You're afraid you'll be rejected, ridiculed, criticized, or worse, maybe even ignored. You're afraid someone else already did it better. Maybe you're afraid everybody else did it better. You're afraid your work isn't politically, emotionally, or artistically important enough to change anyone's life. You're afraid you aren't disciplined enough. You're afraid you don't have the workspace, the financial freedom, or the empty hours to give. 
You're afraid you don't have the right training or the right degree. You're afraid you're too fat. I actually have no idea what this has to do with any part of standing up, but research shows and observation shows that a lot of people don't stand up because they think there's something wrong with their bodies. So we're just going to put it up there for good measure. You're afraid you'll be thought a fool or maybe even a narcissist. You're afraid of upsetting your family. You're afraid of rocking the boat in your church. You're afraid you've waited too long. If any of these resonated with you, I hope that you hear that you're not alone. Yet I hope you also hear the voice of Jesus speaking peace over you, saying, I know you're afraid, but don't stay there. Talitha Kum, girl, stand up. For both of these women in the story of, in Luke 8, Jesus pushed beyond purity codes and cultural norms that bound them to remind them of their innate belovedness and their intrinsic inclusion in the kingdom of God. Looking around today, I see how often women's lives are limited because of that core sin of self-abdication. Too often we outsource the wisdom and authority of our own lives to friends, to religious leaders, to self-help podcasts and influencers, right? All revealing the belief that permission for me to show up to my life is somewhere out there. We're waiting to be invited. We're waiting to be mentored. We're waiting to be asked to teach to be named and to be approved in some capacity. We somehow believe that permission lies out there. Some of us even battle day and night to change the systems that limit us, and that is really good work, I'm thankful for it, but it still reveals that sneaky belief that permission to show up is out there, just out of our reach. Yet one of the core stories of scripture is that we were called image bearers at our creation. We were deemed priests, and prophets before we ever had the chance to prove or disprove our own worthiness. When the Holy Spirit filled your lungs, you were equipped and you were fully empowered. You are enough. Permission is already granted. I'd like to conclude our time with some practical steps towards what we'll call standing up. How do we get, begin to live out the belief that permission is already granted? Um, one of my favorite practices that I carry with some of my friends is the idea of handing each other what we call permission slips when we notice that uh, one of us needs it, okay? Uh, it's a nice ritual, and as we build muscle to truly believe in our own bones that permission is already granted, sometimes we can, we can speak it over each other uh, and, and speak that truth until we're ready to believe it for ourselves. Um, I had a picture of my Mama Jo up here. She's my grandma, um, and she passed me this baton. Uh, it says passion, patience, and pre prepare on it. And it was a symbol of her helping me to stand up to run my leg of my race. And it, I think it was her form of a, of a permission slip for me. As you know, batons, this is really important for me, is that batons are not used in a, in a marathon, in an individual marathon. Batons remind us that we are simply picking up where those before us left off. If you're like me, you might be tempted to believe that you're some kind of a trailblazer. So I invite you, if, you're, if that's the case, for you to get really curious about the men and women that have come before you and that you're just joining a long line of people that have faithfully stood up to do their work, okay? We're never alone. And Mama Jo modeled her faith for what it looked like to stand up and walk in her calling and she didn't wait for permission. She found her identity fully in God. She was rooted and she was fierce.
To me, she was the epitome of good power. She expanded and she included and she kept on pulling up more and more seats to the table because that's how it works. Fully awake people help other people to wake up and to stand up. So as such, I'd like to offer you some permission slips of my own. If, if you're willing and if it's comfortable for you, I invite you to even just open your palms just comfortably wherever you are, just as, a, as an act of receiving a blessing from the Lord. There are seven that we're going to go through, but I pray that you just hear maybe at least one that's going to help to lighten your road ahead. The first one, and there would be a big permission slip up here, but you're just going to see the word. So it says create permission. Think of it as a permission slip, permission to create. Start the blog. Take the photography class. Start designing the new curriculum. Become a mentor. Stop just talking about the nonprofit and make a checklist to start actually building it. Creation, I believe, is the antidote to cynicism. Creating is a kind of standing up and believing that we have something to say and work worth doing. Creating is holy defiance to claim that only to the idea that only some are worthy to create. You have permission to create. Next is permission to reimagine sacred space. Just like Moses noticed that the ground in the middle of the wilderness was holy, and just like Jacob woke up from that dream with the proclamation that surely God has been here the whole time and I, I was not aware of it. I pray that you'll also wake up to the places and spaces that God is making sacred. You have permission to dream beyond church buildings and beyond Sunday mornings. Imagine how sacred a lunch hour or maybe even a beer hall. Sorry, could you say that? I've got to stop that. Imagine how sacred outside of Sunday mornings and even just think of a, a beer hall on a random weeknight maybe. This one has actually been really big for me. Instead of waiting for permission to preach, I've been curating my own practice hours on a little app you may have heard of called Instagram, okay? I've been practicing preaching out there and making my own space to, to learn. I started opening my home one Thursday night a month um, to, to a group of people that I recognized were asking questions that didn't quite fit on a Sunday morning, okay? So that's what it looks like for me, and I, I pray that you'll have a fresh imagination for your own context to reimagine where God may already be working. Maybe you were not aware of it. Okay, you have permission to reimagine what sacred space looks like. Permission to fail. Clinical psychologist Dr. Thema Bryant points out that too often people that come out of trauma or long histories of being told that they are not worthy to stand up, the response becomes perfectionism. They must perform perfectly as not to reinforce their oppressor's view of them as unqualified. Having permission to fail is radically human. Abandon perfection. You are free to practice, and you're free to get it all wrong. Get really comfortable with the words, I don't know. Try something new and refuse the idea that you have to do it perfectly the first time. Practice, play, fail, learn. You have permission to fail. Four is permission to rest. No more striving or hustling for our worthiness. Rest is a sacred resistance to proving our own worth. Rest roots us in God's power, not in our own. And rest reminds us that we are more than our own accomplishments and more than our own checklists. Learn to say no. Make a habit of being slow to leave the table. Sit down to eat. Schedule sabbaticals and honor them. The practice of rest reminds us that God delights in us 
period. You have permission to rest. Permission to drop your fists. Permission to forgive, to let people off the hook, and to quit demanding that everyone else be in the exact same place in their journey as you are. I need to hear this one a lot. I pray that you remember that empowered people don't need a villain to fight. When you find yourself animated by a person, an organization, a group, or even an entire political party, I pray that you'll take a deep breath and refuse to let your differences be what defines you. Stay focused on who you are and who are you, who you are becoming. And I want you to think about those long-term enemies that you've been fighting for a long time. Maybe practically get comfortable speaking their names again. And if that's too hard, maybe name even just use their children's names. It's a practical step for me in forgiveness and learning to just um, to drop my fists. We're all human and we're all beloved by God. You have permission to drop your fists. Number six is permission to leave. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever got from a marriage therapist when I needed to accept permission to divorce my husband. He's sitting right here, so don't freak out. Um, after I got over my horror at that advice, um, I understood her deeper message, that I couldn't fully choose to be present until, into my marriage until I knew I had the option to leave my marriage. So I don't know who needs to hear this today, but you're not trapped and you're not stuck in your church, your friend group, or in any relationship. Empowered people choose the spaces and relationships that they inhabit and you're, you are free to show up fully and authentically as themselves. I pray you know deeply that you have permission to leave and that is the only way you can actually truly stay and be fully present. And for our last one is permission to lament. Richard Rohr tells us that we can't heal what we can't acknowledge, so you have permission to name the things that hurt and the things that are still causing hurt. Write them down. May you know that you have permission to lament freely to God, but also that you can have community that can help um, carry your pain. Grief needs a witness, and I pray that you will not white-knuckle your pain alone. You have permission to lament. So to my friends here today, I pray that you will know deeply that you are noticed, you are seen, you are loved, and you are held by a very good God. God's design for us was always for our full flourishing, every last one of us. Whether you find yourself this morning fiercely curating space for yourself in a world like the bleeding woman, or maybe you're more like that little girl who needs to hear Jesus' words, girl, stand up. I pray you will respond to this invitation. Don't delay the sacred word of coming home to yourself and speak those words over others that desperately need to hear a word of hope. So I'm going to end with the sacred words of Jesus. Girl, stand up. Talitha kum. Permission is already granted. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you.